teaching and reading of God's word. We have begun a series in the book of Judges, and we are gonna begin looking at the particular details of um, the book of Judges today. Uh, last week, I preached kind of on the whole book of Judges and the major themes that we will encounter throughout the book or the major themes that are to be relevant to our understanding and our reading of it, but today we're gonna dive deep into the text but truly, due to time constraints, we're not going to be able to read the entirety of the section that has been allotted for today, which is Judges 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to have a lot of this throughout our, our series in the book of Judges. It's, it's not necessarily a long book per se, but I mean, the stories can be long, and it would take 10 to 15 minutes, in some cases, to read the entirety of these stories, you know, verbally. So for that, for that being said, we're just going to, what I'm going to try to do not only for this, but throughout the series of Judges, is to kind of help you understand what is going on in the particular passage that we're dealing with today. So I'm gonna do that with this chapter by, by approaching it in a three-step process. We're gonna start really high and look at where Judges chapter one through two, five fits in the grand scheme of the book of Judges. Then we're gonna come down even a little closer and focus on Judges one and then get even a little closer, boots on the ground and look at this text so that we understand what Judges chapter one through two five is about. So let's start at a 20,000 perspective of where Judges one fits into the grand scheme of the whole book of Judges. If you will, the book of Judges has 21 chapters. Kids, wanna pay attention to your little booklet, your sheet, that's an answer. There are 21 chapters in the book of Judges. Now interestingly, the book contains both two introductions, and two conclusions. Very strange, interesting. The introduction consists of chapters one through chapter three. And then the conclusions take up chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Between the introduction and conclusion are the story of Israel's judges. This is chapters three through 16, which takes up a period of about 400 years in Israel's history. But I wanna go back to the double introduction and the double conclusion. These placed in the book of Judges are intentional. And it, it, it's this structure of two introductions and two conclusions that gives the structure and, and it, it gives this meaning to the book of Judges. And I wanna speak to the meaning of the two introductions and the two conclusions for a brief moment. At the beginning of the book of Judges, in these introductions, what we will see is that Israel demonstrates a moderate amount of faith. A moderate amount of faith. You'll see this this morning We're gonna, as we get boots on the ground in this text. But as the story unfolds, their faith in God and trusting him begins to fade. And by the end of their story, their faith is nearly non-existent. And the two stories that make up the end of the book of Judges demonstrates what life without God looks like. It is, like I said last week, it's a doorway to hell. If you wanna know what hell looks like, just read the end of Judges. So this theme of going from a moderate amount of faith to absolute faithlessness in the structure of the book of Judges is a very important theme to the book of Judges and what it wants to communicate as a whole. 20,000 feet, it communicates this. Judges is a book that calls the people of God to repentance and faith. Since Judges is a doorway into hell, it communicates to God's people what the prophets of Israel said explicitly in their letters to Israel. 
It's just said a different way. It is to repent and to believe, to trust the God who has shown himself faithful. There's three different categories in the Hebrew Bible. If you, if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And the Jews take this Hebrew Bible and they categorize it into three sections. They call it the, the, the Pentateuch, the Ketuvim, and the, the Nevi'im. I, my Hebrew is terrible, okay? But those three categories, it's, it's the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings. What book do you think the Jews put judges in? What category? They put it in the prophets. Because the story of judges and the themes that are taken place as it's structured is absolutely prophetic. It is a picture to us of what a people who go from moderate amount of faith to faithlessness and what happens to them. 20,000 feet, that's part of where judges Chapter one fits into the grand scheme of things. It's a demonstration of a moderate amount of faith. But let's go down deeper. Let's go down a little bit deeper and look at this introduction very briefly. Since I said that there's two introductions, those two introductions are gonna communicate something different. Now we know that there's two introductions because the first introduction begins, as you see in your text, it's in your bulletin, it begins with the death of Joshua. The man who took over from Moses as they're coming out of Egypt. And it begins with Joshua dying in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Then all the way down, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, you have the story that we're going to look at today. But in Judges chapter 2, verse 6, guess what you have again? You have the death of Joshua again. Two introductions. Two introductions. So what do we make of the two introductions? Why are there two introductions? Well, I'm simply gonna let the two sermons that are preached on the two introductions speak for themselves. Some of them have claimed this is the political, the first introduction is a political introduction to Israel at the time, and the second one is a spiritual introduction. I think that those are good. But I'm gonna let John and I, as we preach these two introductions, kind of let these sermons speak for themselves because I think you can deduce spiritual realities out of both of them and political realities out of both of the introductions. So I'm gonna let the two introductions speak for themselves. But I want you to see more than anything that these introductions show Israel with a moderate amount of faith. Now let's go down boots in the ground looking at the first introduction. It's chapters one, one through chapter two, verse five. This first introduction can be broken up into three different compartments. The first I label the Acts of Judah. This is, you will see from Judges chapter one, all the way through verse 26 in that same chapter. So the first section of this first introduction is the Acts of Judah. The second section in Judges is the Acts of Israel's northern tribe in chapter one, verses 27 through 35. And then finally, there's the third kind of movement of, of this first introduction, which I label the Act of God and Israel's response. So three movements in this first introduction, the acts of Judah, the acts of Israel's northern tribe, the act of God, and Israel's response. Now, I know there's a lot of uh, things being assumed here, some of the things being like, you know, Israel, Judah, uh, um, like tribes. And, and all I want to say to you, those of you that are like lost in some of these words and languages, just start reading your Bible. Just start reading your Bible. And you'll begin to learn that the tribes of Israel came from a man named Jacob who had 12 sons. And, and, and then th there's now 13 tribes because one of those sons, Joseph, 
ended up having two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they became the 13 tribes of Israel. And these are the people that come from Jacob, who descended from Isaac, who descended from Abraham. Just read your Bible and you'll begin to grasp and understand the beauty and the, the significance of Judges. And we're going to study this today. Again, I say to you, Judges is a doorway to the Old Testament, into the way that God has acted with his people. It's a way into God himself. And that's what we're going to encounter this morning. So if you will, with all that being said, this introduction of, of, of the book of Judges and of the introduction we're going to get to, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to study the first introduction of the book of Judges. Gracious Lord, we ask, O oh Lord, that this time of study of the book of Judges would be beneficial to us, to your people. O oh Lord, by your spirit, would you enlighten not only the word that is in our, our bulletin and in our Bibles, but you would reveal to us the truth of ourselves, that we are not very different than the people of Israel in the book of Judges. But Lord, more than that, would you remind us of yourself, of how faithful you are to a covenant people who are often so faithless. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're gonna look at three different texts, the three different themes of, of the first introduction of the book of Judges. The first is the Acts of Judah, and we're just simply gonna look at verses one through four. You'll notice, though, if you have your Bible, this continues all the way down to verse 26, but we're just gonna look at the first four. Here's the first, Acts of Judah in the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now, secondly, the second theme of this first introduction, which I labeled the Acts of Israel's North. Manasseh, that being one of the tribes from Joseph, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shein and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And finally, the third kind of theme from this first introduction titled, An Act of God in Israel's Response, chapters 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Boshin, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. One of the most compelling stories for me that I meditate and think about all the time comes from Matthew 14. It's the story of when Jesus is walking on the water 
and he comes to the disciples, and the disciples are incredibly fearful of what they see. They, in fact, think that Jesus, who's walking on the water, is a ghost. They're absolutely terrified, and who can blame them? But Jesus continues walking towards them, and then he says, take heart, guys. It is I. Do not be afraid. But of course, when Jesus says this, this statement isn't enough for Peter to believe that it is Jesus. And Peter says to him, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus replies, come. And oddly, Peter does. He walks right up to Jesus on the water, just as Jesus is walking on the water. This is an amazing story. And you, you can't blame me for not think, like, thinking about this story all the time. But then something happens. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and he looks at the wind. And he becomes afraid in that very moment. Peter's faith that enabled him to walk on the water in a moment when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he puts them on the wind and his fear begins the process of Peter sinking. It is a fading faith that is seemingly leading to absolute destruction. Now, this story in Matthew 14 that I've just shared with you, one that I meditate and think about on all the time, articulates a similar message to the opening introduction of the book of Judges. In this chapter, what we encounter is a people who have faith in God. If you take Peter, they're looking at God. But what you will see is that the wind starts kicking up and their eyes go from God to the wind. And that's what we have in Judges chapter one. It is a picture of a fading faith, a fading faith that could and will, according to Judges, lead to an inevitable destruction. This is why I've titled the sermon today, A Fading Faith. And friends, look, as Christians, fading faith is a real part of our life with God. It can come up and creep up into all of our lives at any moment for whatever reason. There's always the possibility of taking your eyes off of God, of trusting God and trusting something else. Israel learned this in the book of Judges, and it has come to us to give us a warning. Fading faith is a real possibility with God. But let us not go the way of Israel in the book of Judges. This is the warning to us. At the beginning of the book of Judges, there's a fading faith of Israel that truly, if we look at it, if you were to read it, is seemingly docile. But all the characteristics of a fading faith from Judges 1 and 2 are present throughout the rest of the book. And what I want to do this morning is I want to identify three of the characteristics of a fading faith that we find in Judges chapter 1 and then the beginning of chapter 2. That we might understand how, how that cancer that was present in the life of Israel might be present in us. That we might identify it and seek the solution for that cancer. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the three characteristics of a fading faith that we find in Israel. But more than that, it is my hope to drive you to the solution that can cure that cancer. 
okay? So three characteristics of a fading faith. That's what we're gonna study today. The first characteristic of a fading faith that we see in Israel is a fading faith is distracted. A fading faith is distracted. We read in the opening verse of Judges that the de- after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now here's what I want you to see. This is commendable faith. The Israelites are crying out to God and are leaning on him for direction. If you will, they are praying. This is a faith to emulate. And in their response, the Lord responds. The Lord says in verse two, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. This is great. God has responded with direction for who should be the first to enter the land and he has given them confirmation that the land is already given into their hand. The almighty God has spoken and given that word to Judah. It's a done deal. But look at verse three. In verse three, we read, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, saying, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. Now, we can read this so quickly that we don't even see the fading faith that's present already in Judah's life. And here we have the first sign of a cancerous faith. God said Judah will go up first, and Judah has been given the land. But what is their first response? Is it to go and take the land? It is not. It is actually turning to their brother tribe, Simeon, and saying, help us. Something was up with Judah. They couldn't trust God's word. And what was it? Well, the answer to this, I believe, is found in the story from the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 13, when the Israelites have come out of Egypt and they're sitting in the wilderness just beyond where the promised land was, Moses says, or via from God, he says, we need to send spies into Canaan to see what's going on, to see what we're coming up against. And so several men were were elected to go, and they go, and they come back, and they've got these large pieces of fruit, and the people go, okay, what was it like? What was it like? And the spies said this, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. The people are large and intimidating. Caleb, one of the spies, didn't like this, and he spoke up courageously saying, let us go up at once. Let's go now and take them. But the other spies immediately drowned him out, saying this, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. The land we have spied is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw are giants. We saw the giant people of the Nephilim, and we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. What did Judah look? How were they distracted? They were distracted by the might and the power of the people they saw. They were more taken by the power and the might of the people than they saw than they were the almighty God who brought them into the land and has brought them out of Egypt. They were taken more by the people than they were by God. Do you see how this faith is fading? There's faith there, but it's beginning to fade, and they're distracted by what they see rather than what they heard. 
Do you see how this can be relevant in our lives, people? Do you see how that story that I said of Peter, it connects to this? The wind's kicked up and Peter sees it. He's not looking at Jesus and he begins to sink. Judah already, three verses in, and the faith that they had in verse one is gone by verse three. They were distracted by what they saw. It's a relevant question for all of us. You know, we have the testimony of a faithful God who's faithful to his promise time and time and time again. And we, we can attest to his faithfulness throughout all our lives, but so many of us go, well, what's that over there? That's gonna promise, that promise of, of that job is gonna give me the money that I think will make me happy. I think that's gonna do it for me. Oh, oh what's this over there? Maybe I'll be famous now, and, and people will know me, and I will have meaning and significance. Oh, that, that'll be good. And our eyes get distracted so easily. And here is faith. Faith in God fades. I wonder if that distracted faith or that distracted characteristic of a fading faith is present in your life. If it is, pay attention. It is this little cancer that began in Judah's life that ended in chapter 21. Pay attention in your life. A fading faith is distracted. Secondly, though, the second characteristic that we come to and find in Judges, in the first introduction of Judges in our text, is that a fading faith is disobedient. It's not only distracted, but it's disobedient. Look with me at Judges 1, chapter 27 through 28. Here we're going to read a lot of names that we have no clue what we're reading. It's just like, <laughs> I got no clue. You might be like, man, he, he read Iblaim with such confidence. I don't even know what that, like, how do you do that? The rule of thumb when you read a word in, in any, some of you guys will read Bible, okay? The rule of thumb is just to own it with confidence and people will think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay? So we've got this, but let's look at this again. I want you to look at this. Despite all the names, I want you to, I'm gonna develop these themes, okay? Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shein and its villages, or Tanakh, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblaim, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo, and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now, I just had these two verses in your, in, in your bulletin, and, and for what it is, because this will continue through verses 29 through 35. Of all the northern tribes of Israel, broken up into 13 tribes, the northern tribes kept doing this. They didn't take the land and they enslaved the people that were in the land. They didn't take the land and they enslaved it. Four times it says that the northern tribes enslaved the people in their areas. Now if you were to read this, you know, without any biblical context or Old Testament complex, you'd be like, okay, so whatever. Like they didn't, well, that's fine. But here's the thing. This was absolutely blatant disobedience by these Jews. Not taking the land was disobedience, blatant disobedience by the Jews. And this is easily seen as a characteristic of a fading faith. Now let me show you how this was blatant disobedience. As a whole, the book of Judges is a story of the second generation of Israelites who had been set free from slavery in Egypt and are entering into the promised lands. These are the people that God wants to take Canaan for the Jews. And their primary task was to take the promised land by force. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 7. 
This is like his last sermon that he's given to Jews. Listen to what Moses says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, and so on and so on, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You gotta kill them all. Moses tells them that they need to devote all these people to destruction. And trust me, this feels harsh, and I'm gonna go on a little bit of a side tangent in just a moment to address the harshness of this reality. But for the moment, I want you to see that this is a deeply spiritual matter for God's people. It is so vital for their covenant relationship with God. And I say this because Moses continues in verse three. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following God. So you will, they'll turn from God to serve other gods. These people are gonna turn you away from me. They're gonna take your eyes off. And what did the tribes do when they entered the land? They didn't devote them to destruction. The very thing that Moses commanded them to do via God, they didn't do. They were blatantly disobedient to God's command. And this, my friends, is a sign, a symptom of a fading faith. Now, I said I wanted to, 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 to do a little sidebar. This is not connected, but I do think this is just important for our consciences and our, our minds and our, our, as we think about the, the reality of God's people going into land and devoting this entire people to destruction. How can God command the utter destruction of a people? And, and truly, as Westerners, this can be very problematic for us. We despise genocide. I mean, we fought wars over this, more or less. Okay? We despise this. And yet here, the God of the Bible is commanding it. How do we make sense of this? Well, very briefly, you can read about this in other places, but I want to address this. We view this situation as if those people were innocent, as if these Canaanites were just good people, just trying to live their life in their own ways, in their own categories. They just, just do their things. Leave them alone. I mean, that is ultimately the winds of our times. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll be good, right? That's relativism. But here's the thing. When you read about these Canaanites, they are not innocent, these people are evil beyond evil. If you want to know the descriptions that is given of these people, just read Leviticus 18, verse 6 through 30. I mean, it'll make you blush. If you want to read about these people, read Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. You're going to read about the burning of sons and daughters as offering to their gods. You're going to read about dealing with demons and necromancies and mediums and charmers. I mean, they're dealing with some wicked stuff. And there are other things that I can't even mention because there's kids in the room. I mean, these are evil, wicked people. Now, if we view it this way, that the Canaanites' destruction, we can see it that is an act of God's justice. He's holy. He has every right to smite anyone who has sinned against him. The day you eat of it, he said of Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. So he has every right to bring justice to a people who are evil and wicked. And Israel, in taking the promised land, is not only to do it for spiritual reasons, they're do it for God's justice. God hates evil. Israel is seen in this picture as an instrument of God's justice to a corrupt and perverted people. 
sidebar over. That's how we can understand the complete and utter destruction of command for this. But Israel didn't do it, did they? Their faith faded, and they were absolutely and utterly disobedient, blatantly disobedient. And it goes to us again. It comes right back to us. You might be obedient in the eyes of the world or, or even your friends, but there can be things behind the door that you are blatantly sinning against. Or there can be thoughts in your mind and in actions in light of that, and you are blatantly sinning. This is the sign of a fading faith. Your own disobedience is a demonstration that you're taking your eyes off of God and onto yourself. This is what they did. I, I don't know why they didn't take it. They probably thought they were too great and they were still grasshoppers when they walked in and they're like, we don't wanna take you. And then when they did, they're like, we're still afraid of it, but we'll just enslave you. This is utter disobedience. And it is a sign of a fading faith. If this is you, living in hidden sin, blatantly sinning and doing what, what you want to do, be very careful. Be very careful. Judges 21 can happen to you too. There's three characteristics of a fading faith that we see in Judges, introduction one. It's a, it's a faith that is distracted. It's a faith that is disobedient. And lastly, it's a faith that is disingenuous. Now, I'd have to do some explaining of what disingenuous means. I realize that there are kids in the room that go, I, what is that? And confession, I struggled to even spell disingenuous, okay? If you are a person that wants perfection, here's disingenuous. D-I-S-I-N-G-E-N-U-O-U-S, disingenuous. But you still might be going, what does this even mean? What does disingenuous mean? So before I show you how Israel's faith was disingenuous, um, let me define what disingenuous means. To be disingenuous means that you are not sincere, that you really don't mean what you say. This happens all the time in kids, and we teach them this, and especially when they've done something wrong, and we say to them, say you're sorry, and they say, sorry. <laughs> they don't mean it, and we're trying to teach them. I'm not, I'm not being critical of that act, but what you see in that moment when they're saying sorry is a disingenuous heart. I wanted that toy. I'm sorry just to appease you, but that's about it. That's the type of faith that we see in, in chapter two, one through five. It's a disingenuous faith. It's not sincere. A characteristic of a fading faith is being disingenuous. So let me show you it in Judges two, verses one through five. I just said that they were disobedient. Clearly, they're disobedient. They didn't take the land. They dealt with the Canaanites. The Canaanites are coming into their land. But the angel of the Lord comes up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he says to them, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? This is God's response to their disobedience. He continues. This is the consequences of their failure to obey God. 
Verse three, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. Now, God's done talking at the end of verse three. Go to verse four. This is Israel's response. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which means weeping, a place of weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, once again, before we get into their disingenuous faith, I have to acknowledge that they do have a little bit of faith here. The Israelites still have a pulse. They still have some faith. I mean, after finding out about their sin, they, they do make a sacrifice. This is good, right? It's good that they make a sacrifice, that they give it back. But like I said, this introduction is the story of a fading faith. Did you know that in the rest of the book of Judges, there is not one other story of a sacrifice being made? This is it. I was shocked to find this out myself. I had to do all sorts of research about, is this really the only sacrifice in the entire book of Judges by the people of God? And it is. The only other people that make a sacrifice are the Canaanites, the Israelites. This is it. And you know what it tells me? There's something going on. There's something with these people. Why are they making this sacrifice? And this question of like, why are they making the sacrifice puts me back into the text. And it makes me question, what are they weeping about when they find out that, that God knows what they've done wrong? I think they're weeping because of their consequence. They aren't weeping because they broke the heart of God or they broke covenant with God. They're not weeping for what it's gonna do to the generations after them how it's going to affect their children and how those children are going to experience death and destruction because of their faithlessness. They're not weeping for that. They're weeping because now they're going to have a, they're going to experience the consequences of their actions. What they're weeping about is themselves. It's a woe is me. It is not about God. And so we have what, we, what looks to be repentance, but in truth, it's a disingenuous, disingenuous repentance. It's not really repentance at all. It's what I call penance. Now you might know a little bit about penance and repentance, but I'm gonna put them up before you because this is a really important lesson for you to understand. Penance is doing something for God to get back in his good gracious, graces. Repentance is coming to God and acknowledging, I got nothing and I'm clinging to you. Penance says, I'm gonna do a lot for God. I'm gonna sacrifice for God. I'm gonna be obedient for God, and then God might love me. Repentance is saying, I've done something terribly wrong, and all I have is your mercy, O oh Lord. What we have here is Israel's penance. It's not true repentance. It is a, it's, it's an attempt to control the anger of God. So their sacrifice is not a sincere and genuine sacrifice. It's a way to manipulate God. It's disingenuous. It's a characteristic of fading faith. They'll never make a sacrifice again. Let me ask you this. Maybe as I've been preaching, something's come up in your life and you get that cold sweats when truth in your life kind of comes to the forefront and you're going, oh man, I'm seen, I'm known. When sin comes in your life and it's real and it's right in front of you, how do you respond? 
I mean, this sermon is intended to do that. It's to expose in your own life your faithlessness and to, 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 for you to realize how you might be looking elsewhere rather than God. How are you gonna respond? Are you gonna try to work up and like, oh, I better do, read my Bible, I better do this, I better do that, I better do this. Like, okay, those are good things, but are you trying to appease God? Or are you trying to receive his mercy? Those are two very different things. If it's the first one, be careful. Be very, very careful. You are holding to a faith that is fading. A fading faith is disingenuous. I want to take you back to Peter walking on the water. I said that there are incredible parallels to Judges 1, and I've alluded it to out, throughout. But when Peter sees the wind, he's clearly distracted. His eyes go off of Jesus. His eyes go to the wind. Understandable. And he begins to sink. And rightly and understandably, he is distraught. And he cries out to the Lord, save me, Lord. Save me. I hope in, in, in identifying characteristics of a fading faith that leads to destruction, this morning for you makes you realize that like Peter, if you take your eyes off of Jesus, if you are completely dis blatantly disobedient and continuing to live in that, and if you are disingenuous in your repentance, you are going to sink like Peter and you will die. But be like Peter. Cry out, Lord, save me. And you know what the text says in Matthew 14? Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him. I said, ultimately, I want to expose what a fading faith looks like in our life. But ultimately, I want to drive you to the one who is always faithful. That when his people cry out. He extends his hand and grabs. And he saves. We can be a people of faith fading all the time. But if I could drive you back to where you say, Lord, save me. I've done my job. And the book of Judges has accomplished its purpose. This is what's going to happen. It's a, it's, it, you know, judges is just like, it's just like docile. It's going to get crazier and crazier. But in the beginning of Judges, it's docile, much like all of us. You guys are good people. I know that. I like you guys. I like being around you guys. Man, you guys are kind and, and generous. But it can even happen to kind and generous people of faith that fades. We see that in Judges. In hearing this, cry out to Jesus. He, my friends, is faithful, and he will indeed save. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we give thanks that to people like us who so often turn our attention from you to other things, that you continue to be faithful to the covenant that you've established with us. This covenant, O oh Lord, established with us, this relationship that we have is because of Christ, 
and what it is that he has done on our behalf. It's not because of what we've done. But, well, because Jesus has done. And that's all we have to cling to is what Jesus has done. He's the only one that can save us. And so we ask, oh Lord, save us. Save us right now from a fading faith. Expose in us the characteristics of a fading faith that is present in the life of Israel. Do this, Lord, that we might cry out to you and once again walk with you. Lord, do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand?